Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Clark? Ist das nicht diese kostenlose App, mit der ich meine Versicherungen ganz einfach manage? Genau. Nach der Anmeldung kannst du deine bestehenden Verträge in die App hochladen und sie mit dem Bedarfscheck bewerten lassen. Wo es Optimierungsmöglichkeiten gibt, macht dir Clark alternative Vorschläge. Übrigens 100% unabhängig von einzelnen Versicherungsanbietern. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. Chris, how are you doing this morning? Uh, I'm very good. How are you doing this morning? I'm very good. I, uh, you may not have heard, but I, I, I came from a ear canal extraction yesterday. I have a very bad habit with earbuds, and uh, um, I don't need you to tell me, uh, because the doctor and everyone else here on Cape Talk has been telling me as well, you don't fit anything into your ear canal smaller than your, your elbow. So that's a lesson learned from They told me that when I was at medical school, the first thing that the ear, nose and throat doctors said to us was the most evil invention, apart from nuclear weapons and stuff like that, that mankind's ever come up with are earbuds. Not the earphone things that you listen to music on, those things, cotton buds on the end of plastic, single-use plastic sticks, which are bad for the environment as well. But they get, they get to cause all kinds of mischief in ears. One person did give me a tip, though. If you ever get a peanut stuck in your ear, you just pour chocolate in there and then it comes out a treat. Don't do that either. That was a joke for anyone uh, no. who might have been taking <laughs> no, that literally. No. <laughs> But the first listeners called in. Please get your calls coming in early this week. We can't have, with a few minutes left on the show, five calls on hold. Get your calls in early. Peter in Weinberg, good morning. Good morning to you and to good morning to Chris and the listeners. Go ahead, Chris is listening. Chris, last week you spoke about the Milankovitch cycles and the... Uh, ice ages that uh, periodically um, occur on Earth. Um, I, I just the night before I was reading, uh, sorry, watching a YouTube video that actually explains that Milankovitch did not himself discover or, or, or work that out. It was done by a, a guy by the name of James Carroll, uh, Kroll, sorry, Kroll, who was actually a janitor at a university in in in, in Scotland. Uh, did you know that? Uh, I only know that they are named after, uh, well, they're, they're named in honour of Milankovic, uh, but, and they were discovered yes. much since Milankovic's times, these particular uh, cycles. But I didn't know who actually was the person who did the hard sums, no. So thank you for educating me. So the guy is James Kroll. He was a janitor, uh, of, um, a son of very poor uh, farmers in Scotland. Um, went through a number of jobs trying to find his, his place in life. Uh, as a youth, uh, read some penny science magazines and was inspired by that. And eventually got a job as a janitor in a library, uh, in Scotland and, uh, sorry, university library in, in Scotland. And at that stage, he started reading up and started eventually corresponding with, uh, other Uh, scientists who had made discoveries and questioning them and sometimes giving them input to uh, their, their science. Mm. And uh, the whole issue of the ice ages came up and he worked out, he was the first person to work out um, the, 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 the orbit, the, the angle of the mm. axis and the impact that has um, in terms of climate mm. 
over long terms. And then um, he's after he was rewarded and eventually made a academic um, staff member. Uh, he for ill health had to retire. His work was forgotten, and then Milankovic mm-hmm. came along, found it, and improved the math behind it, and then got the credit for it. Peter Marburg, really appreciate that question. Uh, Chris, what would it take, uh, firstly, what would it take for the Earth to be knocked off its axis, and what would happen if we happen just to divert just just a, a few small measures um, off the Earth's natural axis? Well, some planets have been knocked off kilter, and if we look at our own solar system, we can see probably two examples straight away of this happening. Let's take Uranus as an example. That's the planet, by the way, that uh, Herschel discovered from his back garden with a telescope that he built himself. Amazing, these people, aren't they? We've just been hearing about one person's insights into maths and how things might work, uh, discovered entirely off their own back. Herschel, another genius example. The That planet orbits the sun in the right place but spins round sideways as though something knocked it for six and this is not unusual when our solar system was first forming about four and a half five billion years ago there were almost certainly big catastrophic collisions between things that ended up on rival orbits or because of gravity pulling and pushing things around you would have ended up with things that collided because they crossed each other's paths and this happened to our own planet the earth the reason we have such a big moon is thought to be because quite close to the origin of the Earth's formation, another planet, which is notionally dubbed Thea, ended up smashing into the Earth, and that Mars-sized planet knocked a lot of the material from the Earth up into Earth orbit, which coalesced to make the Moon, but almost certainly would have had an impact on the spin of the Earth and its inclination. And in fact, the fact we have such a big Moon... And that, and that has a gravitational impact on us, will have exerted influence on the stability of the spin of the Earth and made it perhaps a more hospitable and propitious environment for the evolution of life. So we may have a planetary collision to thank for the fact that we're all here. But it takes an enormous amount of energy, is what I'm saying, and you need something to uh, knock a planet off its axis. You need something of planet size and bigger because the the mass of the Earth is 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. So that's uh, about a number 6 with 21 zeros after it, tons. That's a lot of mass to have to move around. Mm. And the answer to your question, does it make much of a difference if the Earth moves a little bit? Well, take a look at the difference between summer and winter. That's not the Earth moving relative to the sun. That's the Earth tilting that, that is the attitude of one hemisphere of the Earth tilting towards or away from the Sun, changing the energy input to that respective hemisphere for a period of the, the Earth's orbit around the Sun. It's nothing to do with how far the planet is from the Sun. It's to do with how much of the surface of the planet is illuminated each day for how long and therefore how much energy flows in. And that's what gives us the seasons. Look at the dramatic impact of the seasons and you can see straight away you don't have to change things very much and you get very dramatic changes on Earth. Mm. A message here from, from Shabuddin, and it's a, a very, very Cape Town question, uh, question. You've been here in the Mother City, you've seen uh, the Table Mountain tablecloth, and uh, he asks, when the clouds pour over Table Mountain here in Cape Town, often the clouds dissipate in a straight line halfway down the face of the mountain. What could be causing this from Shabuddin? Clouds form because rising warm saturated as in water saturated air 
as air rises, it expands. And as it expands, just as if you were to blow a deodorant into your armpit, it feels cold. Work is being done by the gas to expand. And if work is being done, energy is being expended and therefore temperature drops because average energy is a measure uh, is the temperature. And if you drop the temperature, you make it much harder for water to remain as a vapour and the particles begin to join together and they make droplets and you get clouds. Well, the reverse is also true that as you get things dropping from a higher altitude, they will encounter warmer air and this will make the water particles and ice crystals that are in big clouds dissipate because they will melt and evaporate. And people have done studies actually looking at when a raindrop leaves a cloud, how much of it reaches the ground, and a very significant amount of rain under certain circumstances re-evaporates and goes back up into the clouds before it gets anywhere near the ground. So although the cloud rains, the rain doesn't make it ground to the ground, it makes it halfway. And the same is true with these clouds. They are big bodies, and you were talking last week about the massive clouds. You said that some enormous great storm clouds might weigh a million tonnes. Most of them weigh thousands to hundred thousands of tonnes. But that's a lot of water particles and water droplets and ice crystals, all of which are capable of melting, dispersing, and then disappearing up into the sky again. A message here from Jeff in Wertuk. Remember, you can call into 021-446-0567 with your questions to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Good morning. Is there a difference in weight between a charged battery and a dead one, a depleted battery? Say your typical AA batteries and such. Thanks from Jeff in Wertuk. The answer is, Jeff, yes, there will be. And the reason is that a battery is a chemical reaction waiting to happen when it's in a charged state and that means it's got chemical potential energy since e energy equals m mass times c the speed of light squared and the speed of light doesn't change if the e energy goes up then the m mass must go up to keep the equation balanced so a charged battery will weigh marginally more than a discharged battery a messenger that I, I think has been answered, but it, it is it is the question of of storybooks and children's tales. Uh, does trees give you bad dreams? I can only speak from my anecdotal experience, Chris. Meat. If I eat a, a, a late dinner consisting mainly of, of of meaty steaks and things like that, um, I tend to have pretty vivid dreams. Does the food you eat influence how you dream at night? I've asked a cheese maker this question, who was also a scientist, and so he was making cheese because he was interested both in making cheese and loved it, but also in how cheese affects the physiology of the body. He said that there's no evidence to support this, and I think where this stems from is that a few decades ago there were antidepressants being made, which were called monoamine oxidase drugs, Mayos, and those drugs turn off an enzyme called monoamine oxidase, which breaks down certain chemicals in the brain. And if you block that particular neurotransmitter degrading enzyme, you can boost the levels of various neurotransmitters, and that gives people a feel-good factor. But as well as there being a brain version of those enzymes, there are also versions of them around your body. And the ones around your body are there to break down chemicals around the body that could be poisonous to you or could do, for instance, have uh, adrenaline-like effects and cause big surges in blood pressure. And what people found when they took these drugs was that it was possible to create something called the cheese reaction. 
and people would develop profound surges in blood pressure because of a chemical in cheese which is called tyramine and tyramine gets broken down by monoamine oxidase. So it might be that people have put two and two together and made six because you've got a brain-related, mood-related phenomenon going on with a drug which is linked to people eating cheese and people have jumped to the conclusion that cheese therefore influences brain chemistry and influences mood. There's a blood-brain barrier which keeps the blood system separate from the brain system because the chemistry of the brain environment is so delicate it's critical that rapid departures in chemistry going on in the bloodstream for instance when you just run upstairs could have a dramatic effect on the brain so it's tightly controlled as an environment and these chemicals that would be present in cheese are kept out and they're also broken down by various things in the bloodstream before they get anywhere near the brain so my cheese-making scientist friend thought that this was a myth and that there isn't actually any good solid evidence to support weird dreams arising mm. from cheese consumption. But there is a kind of precedent for this sort of thing happening because there are various moulds and things that give cheese uh, and artisan cheeses their colours and their characteristics and their flavours. Mm. Those moulds do make all kinds of exciting biomolecules and in other circumstances those sorts of moulds and, and their relatives do produce chemicals which, if humans consume them, can have strange effects on the nervous system. And a good example of that is ergo. So, so sort of microdosing, but with cheese then? Uh, it's the moulds that grow on things. And er ergotamine, which is one of these sorts of chemicals made by moulds that grow on certain mouldy cereals, for example can get into the brain and can have these sorts of effects. And there are documented accounts in history of people actually using these sorts of things in order to induce hallucinogenic states and distort reality for themselves. So it, it might be that there's a sound kind of principle to this, but actually the evidence is scant. We have a quick voice note, 0725671567. Let's have a listen. Good morning, Lester and Dr. Chris. Um, I was just wondering um, how it's possible or if it is normal that certain food particles move through the entire digestive system without being digested. And I'm thinking particularly of like um, citrus uh, vesicles. If they're not chewed, then they literally go all the way without being digested. Is that normal? And if so... Does that mean your digestive juices don't act on them? How does that work? Well, anyone who's ever dined on sweet corn and didn't chew their food thoroughly will be very familiar with this effect. The answer is that the human gut has a pretty good a pretty good chemistry at its disposal for breaking things down but it's not perfect and there are many constituents in foods that we can't touch we've got protein and acid in our protein de de degrading enzymes and acid in our stomach we've got fat degrading enzymes protein degrading enzymes and uh, sugar and carbohydrate degrading enzymes coming out of our pancreas and they do a very good job of dismantling most foodstuffs but there are some things, particularly what we call soluble fibre and things that are in plant matter, which are untouchable. We don't have the right pair of molecular knives and forks to dismantle those molecules. And they make it through from your small bowel, where all of the absorption takes place, into the large bowel, where compaction and dehydration takes place. So if you haven't chewed up and broken down some of your food that has got a lot of cellulose or roughage in it, then it's going to make it through. 
And if you take a look at examples of things like sweet corn and peas and other things, seeds that plants make are encased in a tough outer coating called the pericarp. This is very rich in cellulose, which we cannot degrade. And for that reason, if you don't break it up with your teeth, then your enzymes are nowhere near going to manage to do that either. And it'll come out the other end unchanged. So chew your food up properly, but don't, whatever you do, not eat roughage because it's really critical to good gut health. Because by binding water, it keeps things running along nicely. And it also feeds your microbiome. You have a big population of bacteria that live in the big bowel and they can eat some of the things that you can't. And by feeding them, they also secrete various other chemicals that you can absorb and you can use and that do keep you healthy and they keep the microbes healthy. And if you've got good microbes there, you haven't got space for bad microbes and that keeps everybody happy. Let's go to another voice note on 0725671567. This is a question for Dr. Chris. Why are the planets uh, always round? I mean, if you knock something out of something else, it isn't necessarily perfectly round. Of course, when you zoom in on the Earth, having seen it from space where it does look perfectly round, actually you discover it's pretty wrinkly. Uh, the resolution of your view from a long way away is it's nice and round get close and you see mountains like mount everest which is enormously high i mean you're talking about kilometers high so it's it's not a fact that that things are perfectly smooth and round but they're roundish why are they round in fact the earth is bigger around the middle like most of us as we get older and that's because it's spinning the reason they're round is because of gravity And as you bring material together, that material attracts other material because that material has mass and mass has the effect of producing gravitational attraction. How do you arrange things so that in energy terms they are as close to each other as they possibly can be? Well, the best organisation is a spherical shape because then you've packed in as much stuff as possible as close to every other thing because gravity works through the centre of mass of an of a of an entity and so in other words for a planet the core of the earth is where gravity is operating through so everything is being pulled equally towards the center of the earth how do you organize things in the way that satisfies that requirement you make it into a round ball so most entities that you will see out there that are big in space like a star like a planet are going to be nice and round smaller entities which don't have enough mass to organize themselves in that way like an asteroid or a comet, may have some sem- or will have some semblance of gravity, very, very low levels of gravity, but not enough to pull themselves over time into a round blob. And so that's why you'll see things like asteroids, which actually are the source of water we have on Earth. A lot of the water we have is thanks to asteroids that smashed into the Earth about 4 billion years ago. They're not big enough to organise themselves into a round blob, so they're a more irregular shape. I really, really like this next question. It asks, good morning, although birds of a different species uh, may nest in the same tree, why don't they ever fly together when they migrate? Birds uh, of a feather flock together and uh, never a truer word spoken in jest. That is because as birds grow up, they are imprinting on their parents. So they learn This is what my mum and dad look like by recognising their parents. And this gives them their own identity. I know I am a X. This is obviously a bit different for birds like cuckoos, which craftily sneak their eggs and therefore the rearing responsibilities for their chicks into other birds' nests. 
But even so, the parent cuckoo waits for the uh, adoptive parents to disappear from time to time and then comes in and visits its own chick to imprint cuckoo-ness on the cuckoo chick. So in other words, birds, birds have a strong recognition and identity for what sort of bird they are and they naturally seek out birds like them and they know that because they go for birds that they can mate with that they can nest with and that they can share protection and that are not going to predate them because remember there are birds that eat other birds and you need to know what those birds look like i was watching the other day as i was mowing some grass um, buzzards coming down and at the mo- at that time they were going after the mice that were coming out of the grass that i was mowing but uh, they'll quite happily go and nick uh, another bird if they can get it, if they're hungry. So it's very important that birds recognise who their mates are because their mates are probably going the same way they should be. And if you go as a big group, you're in much safer circumstances than if you go it alone. Let's go to another voice note, 0725671567. Let's have a listen. Alex Stern, Dr Chris, I just wanted to know, we've travelled to space, obviously. I'm more interested in the deep. Um, I know it's a pleasure game that we're playing, but how initially did we did we know, obviously, taking space into consideration, and the fact that we weren't out there, could we get so far up in space and not reach sort of, a, maybe it's obviously a pleasure-related thing once again, but um, that we wouldn't reach a point, obviously there's places in space we can't go to, but in the deep it seems like, you know, you can't go as far as you would go in space, you know? Um, the deep is a bit more impenetrable um, versus space. So, how is it that the deep is um, so much more impenetrable than space? Because the deep is on land here with us. Has any human been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, Chris? People have have been very, very deep. I don't know if they've been right to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. I think they have. But certainly we have sent ourselves there by proxy in the form of many robotic craft that have made it down there. In fact, a, a colleague, a friend I, I spoke to a few years back said he was very, very upset when he uh, has discovered a number of very new species, new species in the, in the very deep sea. He said he got to one of the deepest points on the planet and the first thing that came into view when he turned on the camera was a plastic weather cheater, Mac. Oh. And he said, uh, you can't find anywhere pristine on Earth that the soiling hand of mankind hasn't touched, unfortunately. It was very disappointing for him that his first view of the deepest place on Earth was a raincoat. I think there's something to be said about that, isn't there? Poignant mm-hmm. question, given that this is the week in which William Shatner, Captain Kirk, 91 years old, experienced weightlessness for a bit. He boldly went where no nonogenarian has gone before, people are saying. What, a, what an amazing thing. His reaction was profound, wasn't it? But the answer is that the first people who sailed across the ocean, for example, from Europe to find the Americas, had no idea what would happen if they kept on going across the Atlantic Ocean. All they knew was that the boats in the distance and the land curved out of sight, and this led them to believe perhaps there was an edge they were going to fall off. They went for weeks. They had no idea where they were going. They had no idea what awaited them. They were very, very brave. The first people who went into space had no idea what to expect. We didn't send humans, first of all. We sent animals. And, uh, in fact, dogs were some of the initial pioneers of the space race. There's a very touching story of the Russian work done on Russian space dogs. And uh, Laker was the first dog to spend time in orbit around the Earth. She survived a few orbits up there. There was no plan or no ability to bring her back, unfortunately. But uh, they, they had some idea as to how physiology, that's why they use dogs, because they're very similar physiologically to humans. They had some idea that, that they could do this, but then it took very brave people to go up there 
and orbit the Earth and come back and tell the story. Many have lost their lives in the process, but that's all about human spirit endeavour and being a pioneer, isn't it? But the, the deep ocean... It's a fact that we know less about what's down there, really, than we we know about the surface of Mars. We have scanned the surface of Mars with the orbiting vehicles around Mars, within with to much greater degree of resolution and detail than the bottoms of our deepest parts of the ocean. So it's all about accessibility, and it's all about need, and why we need to go there. And now people are beginning to push these boundaries, but it's a slow process because they're dangerous places. Uh, a question here that says, when you smell a, a bad smell, um, has bacteria gone into your nose, says this WhatsApp? And I, and I share a, a conversation, and uh, please excuse me. So a, a friend of mine there and his partner, they're in bed, and, and, and he lets one rip, and she smells it, and she says, ew, what's that? And my friend Brahm was a very dry sense of human. And, he said, and they tell me, he tells her that my darling is air passing over a turd. And <laughs> the question then is, are parts of turd, whatever you're smelling, that particles going into your nose and, and, and mixing with your olfactory glands and, and receptors in your nose? Well, first of all, let's separate the two things. A smell is the constellation of odors which are present at a particular moment in time, odours are molecules. And so when you can smell a particular smell, it's because a group of molecules have activated a particular constellation of receptors in your nose that are sensitive to those particular molecules. And that's why you experience the smell that you do. Where does that smell come from? Well, that smell comes from whatever the source is, which is producing those molecules. And in the case of things like bowel contents, then there will be microorganisms which are breaking down things that they can digest in your intestines. And as they break those things down, the metabolic byproducts of them going about their metabolism, just like you burp, these bacteria burp, and they burp out various gases. And some of those gases and volatile compounds are whiffy, and they contain, for instance, sulfur hydrogen sulfide is included in there and when that leaves the body it's in the air it's an aroma you can smell it but the other part of this question is are there infections or infective particles in there because smells are not in and of themselves anything other than just molecules and while those molecules might be poisonous to you hydrogen sulfide is actually poisonous they're not going to infect you but if microorganisms have gone with the smells, they could infect you. And so the smell can be a proxy for microorganisms that might also, being very small as they are, be floating around on the air and capable of infecting you. So when you smell uh, the smell of puke or diarrhoea, that could tell you this person's got norovirus. Norovirus is very infectious. Stay away. And that's why we're naturally repelled by these smells. So yes, coughs and sneezes do spread diseases, but farts do too. Dr. Chris Smith? We end up with that on that gaseous note. Really appreciate your time, and we're looking forward to your conversation and your your answers again next week. In two weeks' time, we have another uh, school show uh, with uh, school kids, and uh, it's really become quite popular here on the show. So, looking forward to that. I am looking forward to that. Uh, it also gives me a really rigorous workout. I, go, I have to go and have a cold shower after those shows because it boils my brain. <laughs> they ask the hardest questions. They definitely do. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, thank you so much. My pleasure. See you soon. Bye, Lester. Hallo, wir kennen uns. Hier ist Clark. Was du vielleicht auch kennst, nur einen Moment nicht aufgepasst und Rums auf den Vordermann gedengelt. 
Gut, wenn man da versichert ist. Noch besser, wenn man mit Clark seine Versicherungen ganz einfach per App managen kann. Eine echte Unterstützung auch im Schadensfall. Denn Clark kümmert sich um die Abwicklung mit deinem Versicherer. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die freundlichen Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. 